Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to your book, the podcast, The Literary Nosy Parkers. I'm your book inspector, Daisy Buchanan. Merry Christmas, lovely listeners. We have got such a treat for your ears. Before we get started, I've got a last minute gift tip for you. The brilliant Painfully British Haikus, published by Michael Joseph and written by our very own producer, Dale Shaw. Dolly Alderton says it will make everybody laugh. Nina Stibby says it's hilarious and cringeworthy. I say there is a poem about dog poo that I think about at least once a week. This is a brilliant Christmas gift for the impossible person on your list. Now on to today's guest. It's Susie Dent! I'm very, very excited about this because I'm a massive fan. Superstar lexicographer Susie is one of the wisest and wittiest people alive and her new book, An Emotional Dictionary, is a brilliant and beautiful thing. It's a fabulous linguistic history of all of our feelings. I strongly recommend it to everyone who is curious about humans, history, sociology, to everyone who has ever felt hungry, angry, lonely or tired, everyone who has longed to throw a beaded ornamental cushion at a blood relative or who wants to understand why at 4pm on a winter afternoon they simultaneously want to run away to sea and eat a whole box of after eights. Anyway, Susie and I talked about Nell Stratfield, swearing, reciting poetry with Giles Brandreth, and why so many of us are gripped by strange and scary feelings when we're standing on a tall bridge. Enjoy! Lovely to meet you. Well, really lovely to meet you. Thank you so much for making the time Not to do at this. All. It's so, so delighted to have you on the podcast. Um, and congratulations. I love the book so much. Oh. It's just gorgeous. And I Thank feel you. like it's. I've never needed it more. We've all never needed this uh, more. It's so yes. comforting, but in such a, a wise and considered way. It really is brilliant. Oh, thank I mean, you. don't need me to tell you that. But, no, no, I do um, need to tell you that because um, of all my books, it's got the lowest rating on Amazon. So I've kind of been watching it thinking, oh, because it's, um, I think it's, what's a 4.4, I think, last time I looked and I was just thinking, oh, okay, some people don't like it. Um, so I'm ridiculously re- re- uh, sensitive to how people receive it. Well, I um, never think to review things on Amazon because I just feel so kind of chilled about the whole thing, but I'm going to go and give it five stars because <laughs> I believe that's what it deserves. <laughs> yeah, that's very sweet of you. But um, anyway, yeah, so it's lovely. It is something I need to hear um, about the book because it was also a real comfort to me to read. So it feels much more personal than my other books. I think you can sort of feel that, that kind of the texture of it and the 
the depth of it. I think that really, really comes through. Um, so something I really wanted to ask you was, do you have any memories of reading a book you know, in your youth and encountering a new word for the first time? sort of meeting a word in fiction and not knowing what it means and wanting to find out what it meant. Yes, I do. And I can tell you exactly what it was. I was doing um, Dickens's Our Mutual Friend for, uh, I think it was GCSE, or maybe it was A-level, I can't remember. I think it was GCSE. And uh, the very first page had the word neophyte. And I almost gave up at that point because it's actually quite a stodgy first page. I love the novel. It's my favourite of his. But that sent me scurrying to the dictionary. And I really remember the joy of discovering that actually it just meant a newbie. It meant somebody who was a novice. And that seemed so simple. And so I wasn't scared anymore. Um, so it was just an instant decoding. And I think I realised then and there just how amazing dictionaries were because they were your passport to all these wonderful stories. But I remember having this this sort of dialogue with myself as to whether I was going to bother. And I'm really glad I did because I think it set lots of other wheels in motion. I love that. And I'm so glad you defined it. Thank you. Because I was panicking. They're like, oh God, neophyte. Is that like an <laughs> acolyte? But a new... Yes. Well, it sounds like some sort of mollusk uh, but <laughs> <laughs> on the streets of London. But uh, anyway, yeah, I do recommend that book to, to anybody. It's it's amazing. Because I think, you know, if you sort of, you read a lot as a child and you're excited about books and words and you're quite bright, there's a thrill and a danger in working things out by context. And there are definitely a few words where I've met them first in books. Oh, yes, of course I know what it means. And it's the complete opposite meaning. Yes, that's very true. And also there's the classic way that you pronounce things in your head, mm. only to discover in your 20s <laughs> that actually you've been saying it all wrong. Um, and that somebody invented... I think it was um, the linguist John Kerry invented a word for it, which was mizzles. And he called them that because uh, he'd been reading misled all his life as mizzled. Uh, and there are loads of those, aren't there? Like I, I couldn't believe that um, oxymoron had moron in it. So I was I could pronounce it oxymoron for ages. <laughs> and my English teacher didn't correct me. And there's hyperbole and all of those. Uh, so that's that's another danger of reading to oneself. But actually... It also just is quite joyful, isn't it, when you when you kind of discover these little slip ups. I mean, I think now for me, it's probably going to be oxymoron forever. That sounds quite <laughs> glamorous, doesn't it? It I sounds know. like what a character in Tom Wolfe would call one of their children because they've that... all got names like Mackenzie and <laughs> Rochester and oxymoron. That's true, actually. It would make a wonderful, um, yeah, a wonderful name uh, for Dickens as well, actually, because I think he's got the veneerings and the pod snaps in that book. Um, anyway, but yeah, that's that's just, I suppose, as you say, one of the pitfalls of of, um, of reading to oneself, but there aren't many. So I think we can forgive that one. Because I was really excited to learn in your book about um, the first sort of instance of uh, boredom, or boring or being bored, oh, yes. uh, being in Bleak House, which yes. I'm now reading for the first time. Oh, really? Oh, what, because of my book? Or were you uh, reading that anyway? Well, it was a delightful thing where I think that I, if I wasn't reading already, your book probably would have led me there and inspired me. But it's my dad's favourite book. And I've been saying for years, I ought to. And I've yeah. been put off. And I've said this before. <laughs> I just kept thinking, I don't want to read about a bleak house. No. <laughs> that sounds awful. I know. I t totally get that. Um, yeah. And the important thing is extraordinary, really, because... You have to then ask, and this is where emotional histories get really complicated, you know, did boredom exist before then? Or, um, you know, did the emotion suddenly come about and we had to name it? But um, I think 
uh, in my book, I talk about ennui and how that is much more sort of world weary lassitude, whereas mm. boredom these days is something we actively encourage in our kids because it, um, you know, it's the wellspring mm. of imagination and that kind of thing. But uh, yes, I, it, it's, it was a really interesting one that it just wasn't there before Dickens, or at least quite often it's the same as with Shakespeare, actually. We we credit these wonderful authors and playwrights with neologizing all the time, but they were probably just popularizing what was already out there. And just having that ear, I think that's what, you know, writers do, isn't it? And that's why language is so fascinating. But yeah, it is one of those, in a way, it seems, I think, quite a modern concept for Dickens or sort of much more contemporary. And I love it when I was reading about meme and how, you know, mean has changed and from sort of, you know, mean to be a kind of average, to be, you know, yes. nasty or unpleasant, to be like, oh, you know, he's a mean dancer or that sort of. Yeah, so slang's flipped it. But but I think it's a good measure of how we are quite critical and quite pessimistic at heart um, because mediocre used to be actually halfway up the mountain, which is quite good. That's where it comes from, um, uh, you know, the, the Latin for halfway up the mountain. And you think, OK, well, that's not bad. You've got you've got halfway. So it's a classic glass half full, half empty uh, thing. And average was simply just um in the middle and it wasn't bad at all but I think it's the same with satisfactory if you get that in your essay when you're at yeah. school it's like oh okay <laughs> it's not great uh so I I think that's quite sad and I always always talk and bore people uh, for hours about how we had so many positives in the past and we've lost them you know all the uh, mm. The parents of things like disgruntled and uncouth, and I'm really and all of their positive counterparts were there before, but we've just literally, literally left them behind and just hung on to the negatives. I think that's fascinating, isn't it? And I suppose it's about how maybe I don't know if this holds up a theory, but a sort of you know standards of living have you know hopefully gone up. And I know, my goodness, everything's sort of bleak and grim and awful at the moment, but yeah. we sort of you know we do want to improve and we want to get better. And what was if satisfactory is no longer satisfactory that's a sign of progress and striving but there's lots of you know I think pain that comes with that and lots of sort of self-flagellation that we attach yeah, to that we're not quite not quite good enough uh so yes you could I suppose you could see it as an aspirational thing that we're still looking to do better but for the most part and I think it's also because English um particularly loves um, gossip and you know you only have to look at regional language and dialects to see that the words for gossiping itself are just you know that they're, they're prolific we've got so many of them and I think when we gossip we tend to point out oh look at her you know whatever and so dialect tends to collect around things like um, armpits and um, bandy legs in the past and that kind of thing. So I feel like that sort of critical impulse is, is um, really shone through in English for a long time. And it's far harder to find compliments in the dictionary than it is insults, sadly. With languages evolving, I'm going to invent some compliments. Um, yes, I really, really want to talk to you about Noel Stratfield because... Um, yes. Our friend, friend of the podcast, Janet, Janet. Ellis. I loved your oh. conversation about Thursday's Child with her. Oh, thank you. I, do you know what? I, I I wish I'd done more prep for that. It was in the middle of a really, really busy recording week. And I just thought, I'm just not... I, I was too scared of going back, as you probably heard, and, and reading it. And that's not the case with all the glorious the, the books that I've adored. Um, I have actually gone back and, and read some, but this one I just couldn't bring myself to. So actually I'd forgotten loads. I'd forgotten so much of the fabric and texture of it, but I just remembered the emotions that go that went with it. But Janet really knew her stuff. And uh, so it was a kind of strange thing. And I'm guessing that applies to a lot of people that they don't 
you know, just much as you don't revisit the haunts of your childhood, you don't always want to go back to the stories that thrilled and captivated you. Well, I've reread Ballet Shoes a couple uh, of years ago. That's my and sister's that's, favourite, yeah. And that's a book I've read and reread a lot. Um, and the author, Sarah Manning, I think, reads it annually. And I, you know, and I do love it. And I love how Neil Stratfield talks to children in quite an adult way. And I guess yeah. the children in her world really have to be adults and they're confronted with you know very real pressures especially financial ones but um this is a massive spoiler if anyone's not read that <laughs> issues um the end and the sisters being separated and sylvie and nana sort of going off in different directions and i was just devastated by it yes. i was absolutely floored but when i was a kid i just remember it being this really triumphant ending and pauline's going to hollywood oh my goodness how exciting and petrova gets her planes and posey's gonna study it. but it, it felt like such a sort of a brilliant brilliant thing for the sisters and i just I, was like, I don't remember them all being split up this is miserable this is heartbreaking i know i know and i just it was the same um with Thursday's Child, which um, which really it, it is just one of the footprints really of my reading past and a really important one, but um, just just the sort of proud independence really that um, that Margaret has the the heroine, and um, as I said to Janet, I think again I don't know if I'm alone in this, but I really even though I loved my parents and had a really happy home life, I longed to be an orphan because I found it so romantic. So, um, you know, the secret garden or, um, oh, I don't know. There were just so many where I just thought, okay, I want, I want this sort of sense of me against the world, uh, which I wouldn't want at all now, Mm. but that's what I, I dreamt of. So I think there was a real touch of wistfulness and melancholy about me when I was a child. And that really affected the, the books that I selected too. But she's I, such a storyteller, Neil Threadfield. She really, and that the the vividness of it, and making I think even quite sort of dull administrative things seem quite thrilling. But I think you and Janet possibly talk about this, but that children's literature works a lot of the time by getting rid of the parents. You kids yes. cannot have adventures when the parents are around. So if you are imaginative and you love reading and you dream of you know being in a world of your own and having adventures. I think it's entirely logical to fantasise about being an orphan. I guess that's true. And I would have not really thought of in terms of, you know, linking those childhood stories with my current job. Um, But I can see the connection now is that slang, for example, which is the sort of fastest moving area of language, operates entirely on evading parents and authorities. And, And so, again, it's this sort of sense of us against them it's a sort of tribal vocabulary that is an identity mark and all of that stuff and I guess it's it's very similar um and that that is you know the reason why slang sort of scales the wall so quickly well as soon as parents scale the wall then it has to move on because um there's no way that they want them to understand so it's again creating your own space um but this time through language I love that I love this idea that this that communication can scale the wall that it's just got to keep moving and keep evolving Oh, I think we are all, we we share in so many different tribal vocabularies, you know, whether we're journalists or presenters or paramedics or office workers. I know we all have our own joint vocabulary. And I think jargon actually gets a really bad rap because in some ways, yes, it's annoying if it descends into cliche, but it is also incredibly inventive, but also very important because it can be the pragmatic as in the 
quick fire shorthanded paramedics or it can just give you that sense of belonging and keeping outsiders out so it is a really important thing i was talking to a friend who's got uh, a teenage daughter and she was saying that she thinks that language and slang is evolving in a very specific way definitely among her daughter and her friends because everything is so much more written than it was especially i think you know teenagers and young teenagers who have spent the last couple of years whatsapping their friends yeah. and not being with them because they couldn't be with them physically. That is true. And I think what we're seeing is a written spoken language. So it, it's it got the conventions of spoken language, but we are speaking with our fingers. So, um, you know, we're, we're not observing the same written conventions that we used to. Punctuation is changing. So um, who uses a colon or a semicolon these days in any of our messages? You know, it's just a dash. Um, I'm, not, I'm not sure that the, uh, the real abbreviations are still out there you know with sms speak and stuff and mm. people were i think only that's kind of old school um but it is it is as you say it's real-time conversation but but via our screens and so it's fascinating we've not really had this before uh and and in some ways it can be really expansive it doesn't necessarily mean at all that english is diminishing or that we are uh seeing you know the sort of rebellion against all conventions and things I think we're just creating new ones I wanted to ask you that obviously your work requires a lot of reading and research do you kind of draw any lines between reading for pleasure and reading for work I'm sure I hope that the work does bring you a lot of pleasure but do you make time to read for fun or does it depend on what you're working on uh yes it depends how tired I am as well um I do sometimes really regret how uh staring again at a screen all day somehow then it just means that I don't want to look at any more printed words, which is an extraordinary thing for me to say, because I've always been drawn to the printed word, whether it's a ketchup bottle or a, um, you know, street sign, I have to kind of read it. But there are times and thankfully not too many, but certainly there are times when I've just been reading either print or more often online dictionaries all day. And I just think, you know, what? I just actually need to give my brain a rest from reading and that's when all the books kind of languish on my bedside table but um it doesn't happen too often and sometimes actually I do have dictionaries on my bedside table and um, not necessarily sort of standard dictionaries but you know historical ones or um on uh, my table at the moment is oh it's just the most brilliant 18th century um, collection of the slang of the cut purses and the highwaymen and the robbers and the brothel keepers of London um, by someone called Francis Grace. It's called the Classical Dictionary of the Vulgar Tongue, and it's <gasps> just a great this, title. Yeah, it is, and it's he was collecting all of this while Samuel Johnson at the same time was writing his much more classical dictionary, which was meant to preserve language and stop any vile words getting in. He did change his mind eventually, but that was his sort of aim. And anyway, so I do sometimes have dictionaries there and uh, and, the, and the pleasure is definitely still there. But if I'm really, really tired, then I almost can't look at anything, <laughs> just apart from the ceiling. I think a lot of people listening are going to strongly relate to that. I think especially at the yes. end of a long year, I think we're all feeling a bit kind of snowblind from text and all yes. its forms. Snowblind's a good uh, way, but that's where podcasts come in, I think, because you still got the, you know, you still got words. It's just sort of coming at you a different way. And of course you've got the spoken books as well, audiobooks. Um but I even choose podcasts over audiobooks at the moment. Oh, interesting. Do you listen to audiobooks at all? Is there anything that you've really enjoyed as an audiobook? Um I 
do i listened to uh michelle obama's book on um audible and i said that was for me that was important so i think if the author is actually reading it that makes a massive difference because is that becoming pick up, no becoming yeah and you pick up so much nuance and you know things that seemed might seem huge to you in the book actually are sort of throwaways when the when the author reads them um but to be honest not too many i love listening to radio drama so i've grown up with BBC Four radio drama because my mum had the afternoon play on every single day along with the Archers. And so that's my kind of go-to comfort blanket really um, when it comes to audio. Uh, so quite often I will scroll through BBC Sounds and look for a good play. Um, uh, so yeah, that, that's what I do at night time. I still think often of um, an Elizabeth Jane Howard story called Mr Wrong, which was dramatised and just came on the radio one day. And it was it's really unsettling and it's sort of presented as a spooky story or a horror story but it's just incredibly sinister but because Ooh. she writes in such a recognizable world i'd have to check this i think it was maybe written and set around the 60s possibly early 70s and it's sort of entirely i mean it's all believable but it's you know about a sort of a youngish woman in her early 20s sort of trying to leave home and get a job and make friends and make a go of things and then everything goes very dark but you get the reading of it you know sort of being boiled alive in the best and worst way and I think it was much more impactful than if I'd read the story yes which I will because I love reading Elizabeth Jane Howard yes oh okay I'm gonna write put that one on my list but yes I do think um I I sort of struggle sometimes just as it's, it's strange I have these I'm sure everybody has these sort of little blips in their brain that they need to get over but for a long time I really struggled with first person narratives when it came to the book I would almost immediately put it down in the bookshop if it was a first person narrative I just I, I and I actually don't know why <laughs> imagine really what I was missing out um but so not even like Adrian Mole no I found it really self-indulgent and and for me it there wasn't and, and this is totally blinkered because it's obviously not true at all but I just sort of felt like it undercut maybe because it was all a bit wobbly and you didn't know if this was a reliable narrator or not maybe I felt like I was not on um, firm footing I, I honestly actually don't know why but for a long time I did feel that so I'm ashamed of that fact um, but I, I have that lingering still when it comes to audio in that I don't always like one voice throughout mm. impersonating different characters I think that's where I need the the drama um of different you know the full cast so yeah I think I'm much a very real traditionalist but I probably owe that to my mum that's really interesting because I um I've now written three novels the next one is coming out in June and they've all been first person. person the middle one the one that's out now careering that's got two voices and the younger character it's sort of higher and it's I I I and then the older character and the sort of half and half the story she's um in the third person have you got lots of um internal monologues or is it all sort of um well I guess they are inevitably aren't they um it's is there a lot of stream of consciousness or it's a mix I mean there's quite a lot of dialogue and I really like writing dialogue okay. and I'm really surprised by how much fun that is um yeah. And I, th I, I love reading first-person stories. And I do think that you're absolutely not the only one. I think people feel it's almost too easy. I think I love reading them because I love an unreliable narrator. Yes. I love the idea that someone is kind of a bit vulnerable and a bit awkward and you're both figuring things out together. Yeah. When I've sort of tried to write in the third person it, I feel that it's too stilted and I, no, I, I like, know what you mean she all, she they yeah it, it, it's it, a 
bit like either putting on a fancy dress costume or getting drunk where you can know the character and feel confident writing as them if you're I, I, I. whereas the um I mean people do it. and that's what's um interesting about Bleak House that I'm sort of feeling a bit conflicted about is that switch because I'm ashamed of this I'm struggling a bit with Esther I really like the more kind of omniscient is that the right word omniscient for the sort of the omniscient narrator. yes omniscient yes I did a um Oxymoron there, I think. It's a weird, <laughs> weird sort of slabic emphasis. Um, Oxymoron. Uh, Oxymoron. Um, and I know Dickens is not famed for being the greatest writer of women. Oh, of my goodness. Time, but... I mean, there are some ridiculously soppy characters in there. He either hates them or loves them, doesn't he? I think. And actually, it makes me think of Jilly Cooper in a strange way, because Jilly writes these brilliant characters. You know, there's such a, an array of them. I don't know if you're... Um, if you've come across her much. Oh, I think, yeah, no. I, <laughs> I come across the opposite phrase. In my, in my 20s. In fact, I know you sometimes ask people which books did they read under the covers. I think Jilly Cooper was amongst those for me. I'm delighted to hear it. But <laughs> I know she's really good, I think, on those sort of social machinations, maybe, and kind yeah. of snobbery. And those sort of awful women who are a bit jumped up, who'll sort of go around saying, you know, and Rupert Campbell Black said I was the prettiest girl at the party, sort of thing. And... Esther, I get that vibe from. But what's so lovely about a Jilly book is there are also brilliant women who are funny and strong, strong and yeah. uninhibited and self-conscious in all the right ways. So yes. she's a very kind and curious writer. And I think that's why I keep coming back to her. Yes, I know. I agree. And I I feel that sometimes with D.H. Lawrence, actually, with his female characters, because I loved Sons and Lovers, and I love his short story. So The Ode of Chrysanthemums, I think, for me, is just a perfect, perfect example of a short story. But I don't know if you know Sons and Lovers, but Miriam in there is just so... The way he portrays her is just so over the top. So it's just there's a lot of um, pathetic fallacy and the sort of, you know, again, it's chrysanthemums and the flowers around her sort of reflect her... um, Oh, all sorts of aspects of her sexuality and her personality and things. And it's just too much. It's just cloying. Mm. Much as, as as I say, I, I love some of his other work. And I love that book, actually. And I feel that with Dickens as well. So he just doesn't quite get it. But what I didn't realise until recently um, and discovered from a friend who knows a huge amount about Dickens and has written about him, is that he was horrible to his wife. I didn't, I didn't know much of his own story. But he sounds, you know, I, and I was actually quite shocked by that, given the way that he does approach his uh, his female characters quite often like Bella and our mutual friend and things. So, yeah, I, I hadn't realised that aspect and wish I didn't know it. It's interesting, isn't it? Because I think he has been a, made a character like the characters in his stories. We want him to be good. We want him to be this sort of activist for social justice. I yes. Shamefully, I've read so little D.H. Lawrence and I'm really excited about short stories because they oh. sound manageable. But there's they a brilliant wonderful. word in your book that I can't remember but it's to do with a dashed hope or an anticlimax or something. Uh, anti-disappointment? Anti-disappointment, which is kind of how, and I should, I know it's a masterpiece and I should have another go, but that's kind of how I felt about Lady Chatterley's Lover. I yes. Admit. Oh, I do know what you mean. But I think maybe there was so much hype around that, wasn't there? And the sort of, if you read the judgment and about the swear words and exactly what's mentioned and how many of each there are, it's just, it's really quite funny. Um, but likewise, I was a bit disappointed. But then I didn't I read it much much later I think maybe if I'd read it as a sort of 17 year old Mm. I would have just you know I would have got it a lot more and I also loved the film uh so uh, the film with you know Alan Bates is just 
it's amazing. So I, I think in some ways I shouldn't have seen the film before I read the book. But the Ode of Chrysanthemums in that collection, I heartily recommend. That will absolutely be my next read. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard Fixed Indemnity Insurance Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at UH1.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. We'll be back to Susie soon, but now it's time for my Steal of the Week. I've chosen a book that a lot of listeners might already be very familiar with, Harriet by Jilly Cooper. Harriet is a shy student at Oxford, seduced by the glamorous Simon Villiers, who knocks her up and breaks her heart. Because we're in Cooper country, Harriet gets a job as a nanny for the even more glamorous Corey Erskine, with hilarious and sexy consequences. This is as sweet, comforting and intoxicating as a pint of Bailey's, and there's loads of snow. I'll go Christmas classic. Harriet by Dilly Cooper is published by Random House and out now. Now back to Susie. This is a weird question. I'm not sure how you'll feel about it in terms of the evolution of language. Do you sort of miss, because I do, when swearing was racy and shocking Mm. enough to get a book banned, but now you can hear anything sort of wherever. Those words had so much power. And now when you just hear them in the supermarket, what words have power? I think they still do. So I kind of disagree with people who say that Everyone is swearing so much now that it's lost all meaning. And I know that it's used as a filler in things, but I think it's still, depending on how you use it, the context um, and, you know, if you're mixing it up with other swear words, I think it still does have the power to shock, or at least if it's used in comedy, you can see people immediately laughing. Um, If, you know, I, I remember Sean Locke would just sort of give a, perfectly pitched fuck off Jimmy and the whole audience would just dissolve because it's still got that slight naughtiness to it even though everybody says it it's just it still has that instant knee-jerk reaction uh, or response to it and you know I think although they're not we tend to think of them those good old Anglo-Saxon words most of them are about 500 600 years old but I think the trajectory has been actually for them getting more taboo in a way because when they first came out particularly the c word it was freely used you know you'd find it in kind of political manuals and things and again the f word a little bit improper but not taboo and then as bodily functions took over from religious blasphemy as the the real no-nos that's when it they started to offend more and more so 
even now, if I talk to university students and ask them what squares they're using, they they still have the traditional repertoire but what they're doing is they're kind of making them into these new compounds so they're adding face at the end of the c word or you know whatever so i they're still we still haven't invented new ones you know 500 years on so i think they do still have power uh it's just that we are uh yes throwing them about a bit more and we're more aware of that because as we've said you know the amount of communication that goes on that we can actually sort of see uh is is huge now it's vast so i think maybe we're just encountering them uh more often but i definitely wouldn't say that they're diluting massively i do adore some creative compound swearing and um what you said about sean Locke, and i can hear that exactly and perfectly now yes. um i have just i've got one of those beautiful enormous sort of coffee table books that i've been meaning to get to reading and not um it's uh finishing the hat by stephen sondheim about oh. the art of lyric writing i love stephen sondheim with all my heart and yeah. he says something so brilliant about how lyrics almost can't be too good they've got to work with the musicality if something's sort of overwritten or too elaborate or too expressive the meaning will get lost it's got to be quite subtle to work with the melody and I think maybe that's what swearing is that's a lovely analogy and I think that is so totally true about lyrics actually is that yes they can be poetry in themselves but again if you're just reading them cold without the music behind them the emphasis can be on entirely the wrong thing and you might lose the story um, I think Tim Rice is a genius at that, actually, in terms of how he gets the pitch just right and and sort of matches the music um, entirely. Yeah, it's it's fascinating. And and then when you hear about some of the greatest lyrics, like you know, the Beatles yesterday, and how that started off with scrambled eggs, you just you feel a bit of ugh because you realise actually that music is so much more than just writing the words. It's just you know such a big entity. But I think that's a lovely analogy when it comes to uh, to swearing. Actually, that there is real nuance and, and sort of finessing to it. Um, and it's part of a bigger thing. I, I think I read an interview with you where you talk about reading Louis McNeese, and I'd love to hear about oh. the poetry that really resonates with you and, you know, sort of when you encountered that. Yes. Oh, Louis McNeese. Uh, discovered him in my 30s and just started reading Autumn Journal, um, which is just just phenomenal and um oh I think more than any other poet I have ever read and I'm reading a lot more now actually thanks to Giles Brandreth my podcast co-host who's encouraged me to read a poem before bed every night so that's what I'm trying to do oh what a brilliant thing to it's do it's such a lovely thing to do because you don't um you know with reading quite often if you're reading a novel you have to go back every night mm. to the place you started because you just can't quite remember where you left off if you were getting a bit sleepy a poem is just is perfect in itself and yet still has you thinking as you drift away. So I, th- I think it's it's just a lovely thing. It's a really lovely discovery for this year. But so did you read a poem last night? I didn't. I didn't read a poem last night, actually. I should have done, but I didn't. Um, what did I? I'm just trying to think what I did. Uh, oh, no, I tell a lie, actually. I read a poem, not not before I fell asleep, but I started reading some Isabella Rossetti poems. And there's a, a beautiful one called In the Artist's Studio, which is about a man's beautification of a woman and how in his eyes, as he's painting her, he he won't let any imperfections in, whereas actually she's resisting. That is it's a lovely, lovely poem. Um, and also Mary Oliver. I've just discovered Mary Oliver Ooh. as well. She's fantastic. Do you know her? Yes. Yeah, she's her nature poems are just gorgeous. And they're so much more than nature poems. But anyway, Louis McNeese is just, I think, 
the human impulses and the again it's that melancholy and that wistfulness that I think I'm always drawn to um with a bit of sort of blunt pithiness in there as well it's just the perfect marriage I'd recommend him to anybody and particularly autumn journalists just superb I'm absolutely going to copy that you know if um Giles Brandreth yeah encourage you to do it and now you're encouraging me to do it I think a poem before bed is such a a beautiful thing and I, I never really read at night because I'm just so t- I try to yeah. read in the morning which is a oh, yeah, luxury nice of thing. someone who's sort of you know, I don't have children and I don't have a proper job. So yeah, sort lovely. of decadent freelance, but especially with anything that is a bit of a, requires a bit of concentration and is quite new. Um, that feels like a nice way to start. Anything that's not picking up my phone first thing. I yeah, that's such, but honestly, thing. and likewise at nighttime, just, yeah, put, put your phone away because it is very, very hard, isn't it? And especially if you are a freelancer, if you're like me, all my emails come in on my phone um I look at emails far more on my phone than I do on my uh, computer and it's just just never ending really so um yeah so I think I would I would definitely recommend a poem and I I was a bit unsure about it at the beginning because I just thought okay I'm not sure this is going to be satisfying enough for me but how wrong I was and as I say it's kind of complete in itself but then very incomplete it's just got that lovely two-sidedness to it and as you say because that I think poems are so amazingly rich in a way you know you can't kind of binge or gorge on a poem but they do stay with you and I think they kind of float up the next day and lines will kind of pop up and pop into your head when you're least expecting to remember them I read the uh Ducks Newburyport when it was on the Booker shortlist which Mm -hmm. is a thousand pages long and a single sentence long and I think my husband said, oh, so you've got to read the big scary book that everyone hates that's huge and long and a sentence long. Like, oh, <laughs> no. And and after a while, it started to wash over me. And after a while, I found I was thinking about it and remembering parts of it when I was in other places. Oh, and wow. I was really, really surprised by how my brain drank it in. Yeah. And I had to do a little bit of forced it. But I think just like what you were saying about... um. Gosh, it's very beginning. So it was our mutual friend. Our mutual friend, yes, yes. a neophyte, and that. Yes. And if you, with reading, push through the thing that puts you off in the very first instance, yes, and quite often you'll be surprised and delighted. I know. Imagine if I'd just stopped there. Um, yeah, and it was in some ways it was quite a bold thing for him to do because I'm not sure many people, many of his readers, you know, when it was serialized oh. in uh, in the periodical, I'm not sure many people would have known what a neophyte was as well. I'm not sure, uh, but uh, but yeah, quite quite a bold a bold move, I think. But yes, you're right. It does that sort of subliminal effect of poetry. I think is um, is one of its most beautiful qualities, really, and quite often. I, you know, we, Giles and I sometimes talk about poetry on our podcast and I actually, it's many poems where I just don't quite get it. I don't really understand what they're saying, but it, that doesn't, it's like a song, isn't it? You, you impose your own interpretation of it whilst also appreciating that there are many others and you make it personal to you. And yeah, they're just like these bespoke gifts in a way. Does Giles have any favourite poems? That he has oh, uh, he, I mean, away. he knows all the greats, and he actually is a huge advocate of reading poetry out loud um, as part of a sort of uh, big movement. So he's written lots and lots of compilations. So I wouldn't dare choose on his behalf um, some of his, you know, the, his absolute favourites. Um, but we both love Wilfred Owen. I mean, who doesn't? Oh. He he also, you know, he's 
just so well versed sorry about the pun on uh, on all the <laughs> never apologize for a pun <laughs> on um and all the biggies as well so he you know he knows everything about keats and yates and shelley um far more just, than i do that when you said about him reading poetry i had this really like strong kind of vision of him like on a walk striding up a hill bellowing out some poetry and i thought oh yeah that is um if anyone commissioning at more four is listening you and giles walking up hills reciting oh. poetry together that's a program i would watch do you know i'd love of. that and actually just did do, re- do quite a lot of um reading poetry out loud during lockdown but the person who i was also addicted to was sam west samuel west the actor who did every day of lockdown he introduced a new poem and asked people to read it and i think i read i think i did read a mcneese i read something for him Oh, it was no, it was a Lawrence poem actually. It was a D.H. Lawrence poem, um, and it's the archive is still there, and it's just it's just gorgeous. I mean, Sam's got a voice like no one else. What a brilliant thing to do! And I think yeah. that goes back to what you were saying about sometimes when you know the written is too much, and to hear poetry read, and yeah, yeah sometimes when things do go over your head, and sort of having to read things out loud. I mean, I do that when I'm you know I don't know if you ever do it when you're sort of editing your own work that sometimes if you're reading and editing something you've written on a screen, you'd be like, there's something about the scansion or there's something that yeah. doesn't quite work. I can't figure out what. And it's reading aloud when you realise, oh, oh my that's... goodness. I don't know if you're like me and have made the mistake of reading your audiobook or recording your audiobook after the printed book has gone to press. I did that with one of my books. And honestly, I came up with about 50 changes I wanted to make uh, because it didn't scan. And it just, when I was reading it out loud, I just thought that's that's in the wrong place. Uh, that's not how I wanted to say it. And I, it was only when I was reading it out loud that I yeah, appreciated all of this. So I think it's essential. There's a Sadie Smith essay I think about all the time where she says the best time as a writer to edit your work is six minutes before you're due on stage at a literary festival to do a reading so true that's very true it's, ex- it's exactly the same thing isn't it um and yes I don't do many readings of my books at literary festivals thankfully because they're mostly sort of entry based so uh and actually I've really enjoyed that approach because it's allowed me to um move in and out of the book uh, rather, I think I, I, you know, I think a long continuous narrative must be such a, such a challenge. I mean, maybe it's lovely because you just go straight back into the fabric of it, but actually, just doing little entries here and there is a really nice thing to do. Oh, I can see how, especially with something like this, I'm sort of gesturing at your book on the sofa and um, <laughs> helpfully on this um, audio format that isn't visual, <laughs> where the brilliant brilliant variety of it and being able to kind of to feel all of these emotions and travel through time and space and think of all these examples and yeah when it's going well and you're writing fiction and you like where you are it's lovely but then you do definitely have days thinking oh I'm still here or you know when you just can't get people to to do what you want them to do or they suddenly go off somewhere that you really can't get them back from. That's so interesting. So they they do have a life of their own, do they? They sort of move in directions that you hadn't expected. I've always wondered that. Oh, goodness, for sure. Um, Which is lovely. I totally, totally forget that I'm in charge. I often (laughs) feel like I am sitting a comprehension exam on my own book and I'm failing it. Um, And it's delightful. It's really, I bet there's a word for bits of your brain that controlling some sort of creative thing that doesn't feel conscious like the Mm. I guess it might be something to do with the the ego versus the id or yeah something 
that feel that's obviously you and what you're thinking but it feels like you don't have any control over that's it. so interesting so you're sort of like an accidental puppeteer so you're sort of mm. you know but you, you you you're kind of controlling the strings but actually they're jerking themselves in different ways almost like the opposite of lucid dreaming where mm. you know you can't control the dream you know you can in theory control a lucid dream. you're sort of you're you're awake <laughs> you're not controlling it it's just coming out yeah and yeah, no, that's fascinating. Well, I've just, in some ways, the word, well, the words in my books aren't, aren't characters, but then particularly with this book, I did find that the emotions themselves did come to light. And I actually did feel that vicarious experience of what must it be like to feel this. And there were so many recognisable ones in there anyway, that I didn't know how to name until I came to write the book. And also ones where there's relief relief in knowing that there is a word for it in the first place because you thought you were the only one in experiencing such an emotion and the one that I've mentioned a few times just because several people have uh, talked to me about it is a French term l'appel du vide the call of the void and it's that impulse that you feel when you're standing at the top of a cliff and you feel like I could jump now uh, and you know you won't but you realize you have the freedom too it's that that dizzying freedom I think Kierkegaard called it and um, so I had to delve into philosophy which is not my subject at all but what was fascinating was that um, psychologists and philosophers seem to think that this call of the void is a way of reaffirming the desire to live because you're considering the opposite which was just amazing and and it's not um, it's not a suicidal thought obviously because that's something entirely different it is more a sort of acknowledgement of the fact that something is possible but that you're not going to do it and so many people have said I'm so glad that I'm not weird because I felt exactly that too so that was a really nice thing was to pull together some terms that that sort of reassured people <laughs> I love way. that and when I read it I really I felt it really viscerally I yeah I think all those moments have been or you know up a building with like a window open and you sort of and you, of course you're not going to but you think but I could. Um, I yeah. don't know if you've ever come across Almost Everything, which is a book of essays by Anne Lamotte. And she no. writes about that. I think she doesn't give it its specific name, but talks about it and how, I think, again, feeling alone with it and feeling it's a sort of, you know, part because she writes really beautifully about addiction, feeling quite isolated. Yeah. And I think she promises a rehab sponsor or something that, um, or someone like that, that, whenever she is there and on a bridge or up a tall building and gets the urge, she'll make sure she's with someone and she will tell them. She's, for some reason, on a very high bridge with a priest, I don't know why. And he responds very kindly, but says something along the lines of, well, we know, of course, we all think that. Oh, okay. So it's exactly that. Yeah, it's just that you're not alone business, which is is amazing because there are shameful emotions, aren't there? There's another one that... um, it's shameful, but also quite funny. And I remember the joy in finding it in the Oxford English Dictionary was a well-wooder, W-O-U-L-D-E-R. And a well-wooder is different from a well-wisher because it's basically wishing someone success as long as it's not more success than you have. <laughs> I just think how many of us have felt that too? Uh, so that was a nice one to discover. I really felt like squeezed. It's that, you know, <laughs> I feel seen and I don't like it. But yes. yes, hugely, hugely comforting because that is something I really struggle with. And I do think, oh, I just want to be happy and delighted with my hugely successful friends. What's wrong with me? And I'm like, well, it's the human condition. There's a word for it. Yes, there is. And it goes beyond envy because there is mm. pleasure in there, but it's it is 
sort of slightly tainted with but why doesn't it happen to me kind of thing so one of the trickiest things for me with this book was actually tackling those big emotions like envy and lust and sloth and gluttony and things because as I say I'm not a philosopher so I, I decided to certainly mention the philosophy as me as a neophyte came across it but also uh to focus on its kind of linguistic history because that was you know incredible enough there was quite a lot of new learning for me in the course of writing this book which I suppose is a really good thing but I have limited the words to the ones that really sang to me I'm sure you've been asked this before were there any words that you sort of had to leave out because of space that you still think of or miss um no my publisher's really good about that actually she just always just says you know put it in and uh, and we'll see where it gets us so all of my books have started off at uh being a target length and I think how will I ever ever get to 80,000 words and they've ended up being 100,000 um so that I suppose that's a nice problem to have but I went for a walk with a friend the other day and we were talking about how people are you know particularly younger people are pronouncing things sort of slightly differently um and I'm trying to think of the example that came up but she then said well what is it chagrin or is it chagrin and she said you have got that in haven't you and I thought ah I haven't so (laughs) I've now got a list of things that I just can't believe I've missed out essentially because I didn't go through a comprehensive list of all the emotions Mm. because I thought that would be too formulaic but maybe, maybe I should have done well I imagine when it comes up and every idea and every definition leads to something new and sparks off something else to investigate. So oh yeah, I'm sure everyone said this, but I'm just <laughs> thinking of um, the Blackadder episode and uh, Baldrick yes. coming up. Is it cat I or am. dog? I Where? am. Um, to, of course, do such paracombobulation. Um <laughs> Yeah. Oh, he's brilliant. He says, oh, it's a common word down our way. Uh, no, it's absolutely brilliant and wonderful. Uh, Robbie Coltrane and Samuel Johnson. Um, I am prasmotic. Dis- oh, I can't see how I've, I've played this video so many times and now it's going completely out of my head. But it is the absolutely wonderful episode. I am compunctuous. That's it. Too, of course, it's very <laughs> combobulation. And the more we hear them, the more well, they, they should, of course, be words. Like the I one I think of all the time is... Um, in The Simpsons, when someone yes. says perfectly cromulent word, exactly. Yes, and they are all words. You know, any word that we speak is legitimate um, and it's out there. It's just dictionaries who everyone wants to be the arbiters of what's right and what's wrong. And, and they're not, of course. Um, you know, the dictionaries are not validating them. They're just sort of including words through frequency um, rather than through what's proper. Christmas is coming. I am yes. going to be buying everyone an emotional dictionary and telling oh, everyone you. to buy that for everyone that they love. Thank you. Are you going to be giving any books as gifts or are there any books that you're hoping to receive? Gosh, I always always get a surprise uh, book from either my daughters or my uh, sister. So I'm looking forward to that. And I never put in requests because I love the sort of, you know, the feeling of them just going to the bookshop and seeing what, what appeals to me. Um, I am just trying to think think of I did give out a lot of copies of Louis McNeese last Christmas actually um to various friends and I'm probably not going to do that again do you know I'm so behind with my Christmas shopping I haven't even really thought about what I'm going to who I'm what I'm going to give to whom I think I might give the and I mentioned Giles he's done a um a biography of the Queen uh and I might give that to my mum because when we were little she would always drag me and my sister to Windsor Great Park to wave at the Queen as she sped by in her carriage on the way to Royal Ascot. So um, she will probably love that. But beyond that, I am not 
sure. Well, there's there's one book that I have traditionally given. I'd say probably every other Christmas at least, and it is one of those childhood books that I have dared to go back to, and it's um. It's it's called The Lost Domain in English and it's called Le Grand Moon. Do you know this by Alain Thornier? I don't. Oh my goodness. It is the most amazing book. So it's all about, uh, it's French. Um, so it's Le Grand and the, the Moon is M-E-A-U-L-N-E-S and that's the name of the, the boy in it. And it's all about this twilight world between childhood and adolescence and a sort of lost for it. It's just the most gorgeous, gorgeous book. And so... I heartily recommend that. I think it's been tra- I think it's been translated under various titles, but The Lost Domain. But I have given that to a lot of people. And I'm so pleased to say that when I did revisit it, I loved it just as much. And Julian Barnes actually has written a lovely article about exactly that, about his fear of going back to his favourite book, which was exactly this one, and and feeling not, not a bit disappointed. So, yeah, that's a lovely, lovely gift to give. Oh, how brilliant. I'm going to seek out that book and the yeah. article. Um I yes, really yes. love Julian Barnes and I'm always really struck by, I'm not much of an annotator when I read, but it's Julian Barnes where I do want to get out post-its and things and think, yes. this is wise and profound and I <laughs> must never forget it. No, and obviously he's so steeped in sort of French literature anyway with Flaubert's Parrot and I mean, he's just, uh, yeah, he is an absolutely wonderful writer, but it's definitely, do, do read it because it's such a personal thing for him, this story. And I already loved it. So it just felt like we were kindred spirits in that moment. Fantastic. I could talk talk to you about <laughs> books and about words um until the end of 2022 and oh, beyond me um, too well thank you so much for having me huge thanks to susie an emotional dictionary is published by john murray and out now what i feel for this book is nothing short of limerence also susie's podcast with giles brandreth something rhymes with purple is glorious as well as top word nerdery there are some fabulous and fascinating poetry conversations to listen to you can follow us at YBooked on social media, look out for book recommendations, words of wisdom from old guests and occasional shelfies. We love it when you share the podcast with your friends. Thank you so much to everyone who's left a five-star review. It helps other people to discover us and new books. Your Booked is produced by Dale Shaw for New Alaska and hosted by Acast. You can find a list of all the books mentioned by Susie at acast.com booked and check out her selection in our bookshop on bookshop.org. Don't forget to follow Further Reading on Substack for more information about Susie and her books, as well as lots of lit chat. We'll be back in your ears in the new year. Thank you so much for listening. It is the greatest privilege to keep you company and share our favourite stories and conversations with you. We hope you have a warm, safe and extremely Merry Christmas. And we leave you with this from Tova Janssen. Christmas always rustled. It rustled every time, mysteriously, with silver and gold paper tissue paper and a rich abundance of shiny paper decorating and hiding everything and giving a feeling of reckless extravagance. See you soon. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. 
And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.